The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Lord, thank you for this new day. Thank you for this new week. As we meet on the first day of the week, we're so forward-looking now in our faith. We're forward-looking in our hope. We know that we're new creations in our souls by, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The heart of stone has been removed and a new, alive uh, heart of flesh has been put in us. And this is the only new creation entity there is in this present uh, dying world system. Lord, everything around us, everything physically is going to be destroyed. Everything will go away. And there is a new heaven, new earth coming. And I just pray that you would renew our faith, renew our hope, and, and give us um, commitment to fight for holiness. I pray as we study mortification, putting sin to death, these negative topics that are essential to our spiritual vitality and health now, just give us uh, understanding, give me clarity of speech, and Help all of us to embrace the lessons that flow from the scriptures on this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Hope all of you got a handout. Um, it's a slightly different handout, a little more detailed than Romans 6 and 7. Um, and we're just walking through these and leading up to uh, the key verse on uh, mortification. And then we're going to kind of step into uh, John Owen's study on mortification of sin by the power of the Spirit. But the key verse on mortification is Romans 8.13. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Um, but I want to build a foundation on that. There's so much of teaching the ministry of the Word is, uh, well, uh, like being a workman. <clears throat> and there's a craftsmanship and there's a building that goes to it. There's an orderly progression and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to walk through uh, really the book of Romans and try to understand how salvation is taught there. So the key text on sanctification, the key text on mortification, which is a subset of sanctification, is Romans 6 through 8. So just know that just the rest of your life. You don't need to go get so-and-so's book or somebody else's book, whatever. You need to get Paul's book. All right, get God's book. Romans 6, 7, and 8 will give you everything you need uh, for sanctification. Um, so let's walk through where we've been, and then we'll pick up right in the middle of chapter 6, but just by way of review. Uh, the book of Romans was given to teach us the gospel, and the gospel is a message. It's a message of, of, of Christian truth, and by that message, uh, we are brought from death to life. By hearing and believing the message of the gospel, we will be saved from everything that sin has done to us. That's the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. For in the gospel, Romans 1.17, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is probably not in your handout. That's why you're searching. You're like, where is it? Uh, but it's in Romans 1.16 and 17, the theme statement for the book of Romans. But in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So that right there is going to tell you how sanctification works. You're going to live by faith. So first and foremost, that means you're going to live forever. You're going to live eternally. You're going to be in the new heaven and new earth. So when we get to, uh, to the sanctuary later and I get to continue to preach on the new heaven, new earth, if you're a believer in Christ, by faith in Christ, you can think, I'm going there. I'm going to go to the world where there's no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. And you should be so filled with joy. And as I ruminate on that for a while this morning, as I just unfold what that's going to be like, to be finally free of death, mourning, crying, and pain. You should be so filled with thankfulness and so filled with joy. You're going to live in that world forever. 
So the righteous will live by faith means that, but it means more than that because it does include our life now in the body before we get to that world. We have a life we are to live in, in the body. The life that we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And so sanctification is a life of faith. It's a life of faith in Christ. And so it's not like some separate topic now. We're going to some separate thing on sanctification. It's part of what it means the righteous or the just will live by faith. Then Paul unfolds the need for it in Romans 1 through 3, roughly speaking, halfway through Romans 1, 118 to the end of that chapter, and then on into chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3, teaches this one lesson, the universality of sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or more poignantly, we have Romans 3, uh, 9 through 12. Could someone read that for us right off your handout? I just find that these are the most powerful verses in the Bible on the topic of my sin. My per personally, my sin. I remember when I, was, uh, I had finally finished the entire book of Romans, preaching through the entire book. I had one more sermon to preach, <clears throat> and that was on Romans 1 through 16, an overview of the entire book, having finished now at last the, the greetings and all of those things. <clears throat> excuse me, in Romans 1, or Romans 16, I then did an overview of the whole thing. And as I was practicing the sermon, as I do every, every Sunday morning, I, I, I practice and go over it, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. And as, as I was reviewing the sin section, and the Holy Spirit said, I'm talking about you. Talking about you. And it, it shattered me. I was there practicing my sermon. I was dissolving into tears. I'm like, this is, this, is, this is no good. I can't do this in front of the church. It's going to be embarrassing. Everybody's going to be looking down and cringing. But I feel it acutely in my heart. There is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. They've together become worthless. I mean, you think about the words, the poignant words that are said. And then you, when you realize that, that you have received through faith in Christ a remedy to that, that, that that's how God did see you apart from Christ. That's how he saw you in, in Adam. But he doesn't see you that anymore. He does not say of you that you're not righteous, that you're not seeking God, that you're worthless. He's not saying that now. <clears throat> but just to understand the truth of that. So the central, the centerpiece of the gospel is Romans 3, 21 through 28. Can someone read that for us, if you would? All right, so what I want to say is that that section that Dave just read, that's the, the rock-solid foundation under your feet as you fight your own sin. You're going to fight and you're going to fail. You're going to fail. You don't need to fail. I'm going to make that case in Romans 6. You don't ever need to fail again. No temptation will ever come to you that compels you to sin. You'll never be able to say rightly after the temptation and the sin. That temptation came to me with such force and such creativity and such diabolical power. There was nothing I could do, Lord, I had to sin. He will never accept that. That is just not true, ever. He's not going to accept any excuses. Now that you're a Christian, you don't ever need to sin again. And when I say that again and again, because you just need to believe that. You just need to believe. You need to count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You need to say to yourself, I don't ever need to sin. Again, and make that very specific. I don't need to sin now. Right now, in this tempting situation, I am dead to sin. That's going to be the key to your sanctification. But here's the thing. If you do sin... You don't need to, you didn't need to sin. You will need to own up to it. You'll need to confess that to God. You'll need to tell him that you sinned, though you didn't need to. But it actually did happen. And you will receive uh, fresh effusions 
of grace covering your sin. And he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and restore you and fill you with the Spirit and enable you to continue in your Christian life. It's going to be on the solid foundation of your justification by faith apart from works of the law. And I just, I can't tire, I should never tire as a preacher of the gospel of reminding you of that. You're going to battle sin as justified sinners. You're going to battle sin as fully righteous positionally in the sight of God. You're not going to improve your standing by how well you fight your sin. You're going to come back again and again to the atoning work of Jesus, the one who shed his blood for your sins. You just need to keep that in mind and say, I am a righteous man in the sight of God. Yeah, Dave. Yeah. Too much. He's such a deceiver. And in that way, he really is impugning both the patience of God and the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ. Like it ran out, right? The blood ran out. <laughs> it's like, all right, we never foresee there be, there be a sinner like you. And we thought there'd be, we, there'd be enough gas in the tank, but it's run out and you're by the side of the road now. I mean, that's such an insult to the blood of Christ. That is not at all what's going on. Now, he may need to, need to deal hard with you because you're not taking your sin seriously, that you need to genuinely repent and be broken hearted, all of that. But it's not from the, the angle of God having run out of patience with you or he doesn't love you anymore or the atoning work of Christ is insufficient. So thank you. That's beautiful. Chapter 4 is, uh, is an expansion of the theme of justification by faith alone, uh, bringing up the case of Abraham, that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works that David was justified by faith, not by works, you know, citing these two key texts in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was reckoned, it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then David in Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is he whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in, whom the, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32. So both David and Abraham found the same thing. And he just expands and makes that so beautiful in Romans uh, chapter 4. Romans 5 then gives us assurance of salvation so beautifully. Someone read Romans 5, 1 through 11. So that right there, those 11 verses, is a treasure box of assurance of salvation. If you're ever struggling with your assurance, struggling, am I a Christian? Am I going to end up in heaven? You know, etc. You go to Romans 5, 1 through 11. Again, it's not just like floating in midair. There's been a development Romans 1 through 4, you know, leads up to Romans 5, 1 through 11, but he begins so beautifully, having been justified by faith. It's a past completed action. It's, it's once for all. It's not progressive. It's not a dimmer switch. You either are justified by faith or you're not. But if you're born again, if you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been justified by faith. He then says, all right, what are the, uh, the implications of that? Well, since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I think that would just be a synonym for reconciliation. I would see them as not exact synonyms, but very similar. In other words, God is at peace with you. He's reconciled himself to you through Christ. He has nothing against you. The wrath of God is satisfied at the cross. And so God is at peace with you, and you are at peace with him, even if you don't necessarily always feel it. It's a status of peace that you have. And you just need to understand this. It's a status of peace that nothing can change. Now, I want to just pause for a moment. I've done many times before, but I want to say that's different than an experience or a feeling of peacefulness. Do you see the difference between there's a status of, of, let's say, like two nations that are not at war. They're allies with each other. That's a status that we have with God, with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven 
is at peace with us. You don't want to be at war with the king of the kingdom of heaven. Trust me, that is a terrifying place to be. And God, we were at war with him. He, we were his enemies. It says it right in this text. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death. We are no longer enemies, but we are now friends. And better than friends, we're sons and daughters. That's so beautiful, isn't it? But we have peace with God. And beyond that, we have access to the throne room of grace, access to God. You can draw near to God in prayer. And you must draw near. As we're getting to sanctification, we'll talk about it, but prayer is going to be vital to that. Praying without ceasing. Access. You have access at every moment. That's the key to fighting sin. Access. Yeah, go ahead, Rick. Okay, I'm not saying that feelings aren't available or desirable. I think, they, I think you should pursue it all the time. I would say not, not so much even here, um, but I would say Philippians... Um, 4, 6, and 7, where it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I would say that's the wheelhouse verse on a feeling of peacefulness. If you're anxious, that's a feeling of not peacefulness. You're feeling anxious. All right, if you have those feelings, don't keep feeling that way. Whatever it is that's making you feel anxious, give it to God in prayer. Pray about it. And then the peace that characterizes God, God's never anxious. He's never ruffled. He's never fluttered or frustrated. Ever. <laughs> Everything's totally under control in the throne room of the King of Heaven, the Kingdom of Heaven. It's always that. You want to experience that? And you should. Say, Lord, I want some of that. I want that stability and that feeling of peacefulness that characterizes you. He'll give it to you. And, and it'll guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It'll actually stand guard over you while you sleep. And it'll keep you from Satan's accusations and, and, and flaming arrows of anxiety. You'll, you'll have a bubble like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a bubble of peacefulness that will surround you in all of life's circumstances. I think we should seek that. But honestly, whether you feel that or not, God is at peace with you. That's all I'm saying. So uh, verse 5, uh, Rick, you pointed to verse 5, and the hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. I would say that uh, Romans 5, 5 links together with Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that when you pray and you cast your burdens on him, 1 Peter 5, and you give your troubles to him, God through the Holy Spirit will pour out into your heart a feeling of the love that God has for you and you will be at peace. That's, uh, Rick, any other thoughts on verse 5? I, I agree with you and I, I think we are, we're not always aware of the things that influence our minds and our hearts. And I know that we have, that Satan has in some mysterious way access to us. He's able to put temptations in our minds and hearts and accusations of past sins. I, I understand that. But verse 5 is so powerful, isn't it? Romans 5, 5. That God is able to pour out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I really believe that's a sense or a feeling, uh, as Ephesians 3 would say it, of the dimensions, the infinite dimensions of Christ's love for you that you would have a, a sense or a feeling of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And you would know that love that surpasses knowledge, that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's a feeling or a sense that comes in the heart of peacefulness and the love of God. It's really like heaven on earth. And remember what I told you, that Romans 5, 1 through 11, 
The key, that's, those are the key verses in the New Testament on assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation was called by some of the Puritan divines heaven on earth. Thomas Brooks called it that. You want to experience heaven on earth? Have a robust, biblically accurate assurance of your own salvation. That's the best you can do on earth. You won't do any better on earth than that. A strong assurance of your own future interest in Christ in, in the new heaven, new earth. It's the best you'll ever do. So I hope that's answered. Well, let's just keep going because this is all review, and I do this every time. I like to have three-quarters of the time on review, and it's like, oh, yeah, Romans 6. I don't want to do that, all right? I want to keep moving, but this is the solid assurance we have. Romans 5, uh, the rest of the chapter, 12 through 21, is the whole Christ-Adam analogy. And I want to go back over that, but that's just a very important theological principle that you need to know that you could not know, except God told you and you believed it, that Adam had anything to do with you at all. Like, Adam, who's he to me? <laughs> Some guy that lived a long time. No, he is your representative at the Garden of Eden. And he failed you. And he failed all of us. He, he disobeyed the law of God. And, and in him, so did you. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, wait a minute. You're telling me that I sinned in Adam. That's exactly what. No, I'm not telling you. Paul's telling you that. And really, it's not Paul. It's God telling you, you sinned in Adam. And you got the penalty that Adam got, which is mysteriously a nature and a penalty. And the penalty's death. And you got a sin nature in him too, which is probably the hardest thing to explain for those that are zealous on the topic of free will. I don't want to get into it right now, but I'm just saying you got a nature from, from Adam. He gave you nature. And that nature is when you understand law from God and you know it's coming from God, the creator, you'll violate it. Whenever that happens, some talk about the age of accountability, things like that. But when the law comes, sin springs to life and you died. So as soon as you understand there is a creator and he wants me to do X or not do Y, you'll violate it. And when you do, you'll sin like Adam and you will confirm the death penalty that you are already under. And, and it's, it's on everybody who's human, even if they don't understand the law, Infants still die. Even in the womb they die because they're human. And so scripturally, theologically, we would say they're dying because of Adam. All right? But there's now a second Adam. And this second Adam, Jesus, is our federal representative at the cross and at the empty tomb. And in our second Adam, we live. The death penalty has been removed and we are given a gift and the free gift is better than what we got from Adam. It's more expansive. It's, it's more impactful. It's more powerful. It's eternal. It's, they're similar, Adam and Christ, but different. And so Paul says, note the similarity, but let's leave the similarity behind because the gift is so much greater than, than the trespass. That's what he's getting. So it's Romans 5. But then he makes this statement. It's so encouraging, but it could be misunderstood. Um, so look at uh, verse 20. Somebody read Romans 5.20. It's on your, your handout as well. Culminating verse. All right, or sometimes abounded, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What does that tell you? There's like a contest going on between sin and grace. What does that verse tell you about that? Grace is winning and grace will finally win. Just stop right there and just say, thank you, Jesus. Grace has taken hold of me and grace is fighting my sins and fighting the world and the flesh and the devil around me and in me, and grace is going to win. Praise God. Jesus is going to raise you up from the dead in the end. He's, he's not going to let you be lost. He's not going to lose any of us. 
but grace is going to win. And so as much as sin abounds in your life, grace is going to abound all the more. I gave you the image of the Pacific Ocean putting out fire, you know, a match, a torch, a bonfire, a, a raging inferno, doesn't matter. The Pacific Ocean is, is, is amply supplied to put out all those fires. And the Pacific Ocean is limited, it's finite, God's grace in Christ is infinite. All right, so that's a key concept. You need to hold on to it, but what's going to happen is your diabolical, wicked sin nature is going to take that beautiful truth and pervert it day after day after day to the end of what? What is, what is your carnal nature going to do with that beautiful truth? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Let's just don't worry about how you live. Specifically, don't worry about sin. And so that's what Romans 6 through 8 is trying to address. Romans 6 through 8 is addressing sin in the life of the justified believer. And that's where we're at now, okay? Sin in the life of a justified believer. And so Paul says, now I know what one of you is going to say to me, not one of us. All of us are going to say to Paul, well, if that's the case, then let's just sin all the more so that grace may abound. It might not necessarily be somebody who's wanting to sin. It might be a moralist. It might be a free will kind of person who thinks that it's all up to me and I need to prove my righteousness by how I live. I'm going to grip my teeth and I'm not going to sin. So your doctrine is false. Actually, Arminians tend to say that against Calvinists. It's like, well, then it doesn't matter how we live if we've been predestined, right? So here, whatever doctrine you understand about the gospel, if at some point as you articulate your doctrine, someone says, well, then we can sin as much as we want, right? I would say you're on the right track. Got it? You're, you're on the right track. You're actually are understanding grace to some degree, but there's a perversion that comes in. And Paul's addressing that in Romans 6. So someone read, if you would, Romans 6, 1 and 2. Okay, so I, I want to just take that by no means or God forbid or may it never be. There are a lot of different translations, and I just want you to like circle that in your mind because a lot of sanctification and indeed glorification is to get you to say that as robustly and vigorously as God would. That you would end up hating sin as much as God does. That's the work of salvation. And if that work's not progressing in you, then you should question whether you've been justified. Saved people grow in their hatred of sin. And when we're glorified, when we're finally in heaven, we will hate evil. We will hate sin with a perfect hatred in heaven, like Jesus does. So if you're like now saying, oh, now that I'm justified, I can sin as much as I want. It's like, I want to just talk about how much you want to sin. I mean, you should not want to sin. You should hate it. And so Paul's working on that, and he's got three chapters of answer. All right. First of all, he begins with a key idea of our spiritual union with Jesus. He's going to start there. We would have to imagine that was as the most important idea. So someone read verses 3 through 5, our spiritual union with Christ. All right, let me just stop and say, what does that mean to you? That you're, you, you were united or you were made one with Jesus in both his death and his resurrection. Yes, I'm a new man in Christ. Our sisters in Christ would say, I'm a new woman. I'm a daughter of God. I'm, I'm a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I've been made new. And the person I was, that person's dead forever. And that's through a mystical union between you and Jesus. You can't see it. It's a spiritual thing. But God sees it that way. He sees you in Jesus. He sees you in Christ in no other way. 
just like he used to see you in Adam and no other way. And he sees every human being either in Adam or in Christ. There's, there's no third option. And so he sees you as united. And, and that union with Christ, there's, I think Jesus spoke the best parable or word picture would be the vine and the branches. So that, that is absolutely the same teaching here. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you're dead. Apart from me, there's no life. In me, you may bear much fruit. So you should see yourself or feel yourself and know yourself to be in union with Jesus like a living relationship. Another analogy uh, that Paul gives us is, uh, is the body of Christ. With Christ the head and we the members. There's, a, there's an organic connection between us and the head. It's a living thing. So we were united with him. This I do not think is talking about water baptism. I think if you really, even as Baptists, we shouldn't fall into that trap. Because if you go too far, you're going to end up like Campbellites or Church of Christ people saying you have to be water baptized in order to be saved. We do not teach that. You don't have to be water baptized. The water baptism is related to this because it symbolizes this so beautifully. That's why God did it. But it's not required such that if you have not been water baptized, you're not going to go to heaven. Now, it's a different matter, I think, for someone to refuse water baptism. That's a different topic. I don't want to get into that. But what I'm saying is this is talking about a deeper spiritual baptism in the Spirit. The moment you believe in Jesus, you are baptized by the Spirit into Jesus and made one with Him. And what that means is negatively, positively, the old person is dead and the new, you are a new person. And both of those aspects are vital to sanctification. This class is a negative class. It's on mortification. We're going to focus on the negative side. Mortification, namely the putting of sin to death by the Spirit, is only part of sanctification. The vivification or being made alive like Jesus so you love what he loves and you're delighted in righteousness and delighted in seeing lost people saved. You know how Jesus, when the 72 came back, he rejoiced in the Spirit hearing the reports of the spread of the gospel. And, and you, you just love that. You just love the idea of people being saved. So that's the positive aspect of sanctification. Both of those are part of it. But it's all tied to our union with Christ. All right, so moving on then, we come to this key verse on a mortification. Somebody read verse 6 for us. This is where we were last week. Okay, three parts to it. It's a complex statement. The thing about Romans is just, it's just very tight, theologically rich language. And if you... If you uh, Add a little water to it, it'll expand to 10 times its size. I'll make almost every verse is like that. And so that's why people who really seek to preach verse by verse through Romans and do a good job, that's why they end up preaching 150 sermons in Romans or more. Because this happens to verses like this. Look at the three parts. First of all, there's actually more parts than that. It starts with what you know. We know. Paul does that all the time. So it's good to come to a BFL class and receive teaching. Teaching is vital to sanctification. You need to preach also to yourself. Remind yourself of what's true. We know, all right? It all comes down to what you know. We know, well, what do we know, Paul? In this verse, in verse 6, our old self, the old man that we were in Adam is crucified or has been crucified. We should not think at that point then of a long, slow dying process. That's the wrong image here. That Old man is what, according to this verse? Dead and cannot come alive again. The, the connection between you and Adam positionally, including the death penalty, has been severed forever. You have crossed over from death to life, Jesus said. You're never crossing back. So that's, this is beautiful. That old 
person you were is dead forever. But that has certain ramifications. So now there are practical ramifications, and they have to do with the body of sin. Wait, what's that? Is that different than the old man? Yes, it's different than the old man. What is the body of sin? I taught this last week, but what does it mean? Body of sin, right, yes. It's this, this physical body, but not just neutrally. It's this physical body that has been immersed in a vat of sin for a long time and reeks of it, like pulled up and it's dripping in that vat of sin. I don't know what liquid you have in mind. It might be an ink, might be bourbon. Uh, it might, I don't know what image, but it's just, it's just dripping and you stink of it. And you're like, is that really who I am? Yes. I mean, imagine if you, just as you are, even on your best day, were side by side with a glorified brother or sister in Christ, and, and just there were a comparison made between the two of you, all right? Would you really want that comparison made? It's like, thank you for positional righteousness and justification, because other than that, I don't have much to commend me. You're like, well, wait a minute. I'm in one of my better days today. And this has been a really good Sunday so far. It's like, friend, <laughs> you are so far from the perfection of heaven. It's hard to even imagine. So here's the thing. In your mind and in your bodily processes, your digestive system, your reproductive system, your muscular and nervous system, I can't I fully understand it. It's mystical. But you are a black belt expert on sin. You have habitually trained yourself in prideful responses, annoyed responses, irritated responses, right? self-righteous responses to stimuli, lustful drives that you have fed and pandered for years, that's who you are. And here's the thing, justification by faith doesn't change it. It doesn't change it at all, frankly. So somebody who's addicted to, to tobacco, they come to Christ, still addicted to tobacco. Sanctification is how that is addressed, all right? So how is it addressed? Well, it doesn't say here, but the results of the old man being dead is that what would happen to the body of sin? What does the verse say? Okay, that's the final. We'll get there. But done away with is the NIV. Um, there are other translations such as, huh? Brought to nothing. Rendered inert. Um, so like analogy sometimes is of um, <clears throat> like a, uh, an inoculation where you get, get the, this, uh, I don't know, virus or whatever has been rendered inert. It's not active. Can't make you, can't give you the polio. It can't, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, that's the word used here. But it's a process. So I like to think of it as an enemy that's opposing everything Jesus wants to do in your life. The body of sin is fighting holiness. And it's a vigorous enemy. And the image that John Owen's going to give is of wrestling with a serpent, like a mamba snake or something like that. And you're wrestling and you got your hands around its neck and it's kicking and, or and they don't kick, do they? But they writhe. <laughs> if you ever see a snake with feet, I would run if I were you and hope you're faster than the snake. Sorry about that. But anyway, this is the problem with images. But, you know, you're, it's fighting. And, you know, the idea is weakening the body of sin. The strategy we're giving in mortification, we'll say it again and again until the class is over, death by starvation. You're going to kill sin by starving it to death so that it little by little is rendered inert. It's little by little rendered powerless. So any sin habit can be done away with or rendered inert or made increasingly powerless by denying its 
air and food and water, you know, denying what makes it strong. And there's a simple thing that makes sin strong is doing it. So that particular sin habit sends out an effort to get you to do it. It's called temptation. It's an individual signal that goes out saying sin in this way. And if you put that temptation to death, the sin that sent it out just got a little bit weaker. If, on the other hand, you do not put it to death, that sin that sent it out just got a little bit stronger. What's so amazing about this struggle is that neither one of you can kill the other in this life. You cannot kill a sin habit, a a categorical sin. But you can kill individual temptations and you can weaken the categorical sin habit. So, for example, you can't kill the sin of telling white lies or or exaggerating stories to make you look good and make somebody else look bad. So that's slander and gossip. You can't kill that sin. Such that you can say, I know this. I have reached such mastery in that area. It's been three years since I told a story like that. I know I will never do that again. What would you say to somebody who said that? I know I will never tell a story like that that makes somebody else look really bad and me look really good. What would you tell us? You just did it. Yeah, sin is so slippery. So you need to be humble and watchful the rest of your life. And all the more if there's an area where you have repeatedly sinned in that area. You need to be especially vigilant in that area. So all I'm saying, you can't kill it, but you can weaken it to the point where it really is not hindering you day by day. That's sanctification. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, um, well, I just don't think it's, it's very different at all from somebody who isn't sufficiently struggling against their internet porn habit heterosexually. They could say, God made me like this. I just love women. I love beautiful women. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, to some degree, I just want to understand what you mean by God made me this way. This is the essence of the body of sin. It's a normal biological drive that jumps the fence of God's law and gets outside the boundaries of what God has restricted. Remember, you may eat all from, from all the trees of this garden, right? But you may not eat from that. It's a boundary. And from the very beginning, sin jumped a prohibition, a boundary, and took what was forbidden. That's what the flesh does. So it's not actually any different than, than those of us that are more normal in our lusts would say also. God made me like this. What can I do? And I'm saying that's just that's the essence or it's a major ingredient of the essence of Satan's lie to us. You have to say, no, God did not make me like this. He did not make me a glutton. He did not make me a drunkard. He did not make me a sluggard. Loving, food, drink, sleep. So concerning that, there's so much more I could say because it is such a perversion um, in Romans 1. I could say a lot of things. And actually, I think later in this BFL schedule, I will be dealing with human sexuality. So there's a lot more I could say. And you did say without going into too much detail. So I'm, 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 stop, I'm stopping. I, I would be grieved if we don't, friends, if we don't get out of Romans 6, I will be very, very grieved. All right. So and that's my own fault. I know. But bottom line, that's where we got the title, slaying temptation, starving sin. I'm making a difference between temptation and sin. Temptation's like a radio signal sent out from the radio station. You can't destroy the radio station, but you can block each signal sent out by it. That's, I'm making a difference between the two. So one of them is very occasional. It happens at a specific time and place. And you can kill it like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife by leaving your garment in her hand and running. Run. So lead us not into temptation. He makes a way of escape. There are ways to kill individual temptations. So I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's keep going. Uh, The spiritual fact of our death to sin, verses 6 through 11. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should effectively no longer be slaves to sin. 
So he's got this image of the slave and the master that he's going to return to in Romans 6. Because, verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the, right, the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you're going to go to two places, I think, in your mind. First, to Christ dead on the cross. Paul brings you there. When he died, he died to sin and death forever. So when he said it's finished and he gave up his spirit, his, his atoning work was done. And so sin and death and the law and all of that and its condemning force is done forever for Jesus as our substitute. He doesn't need to do that again. The author of the Hebrews makes so much of, of this that that happened once for all, never again to be repeated. So just like Jesus was done with sin and death forever. Now, he never sinned, but he was done bearing sin forever. In the same way, count yourself as, just like Jesus, dead to sin forever. Now, do you see how Paul is laboring to get you to understand this completely in the context of Jesus' death on the cross and not apart from it? You should not think, I'm like Jesus. I've come to my own courageous, awesome death to sin. You have no such thing. Your death to sin is in Christ, by faith in Christ. It's in no other place. So he's actually bringing you again and again. See Jesus in your mind dead on the cross. See him risen from the grave. Just picture that. That's you. But I think you can also, to some degree, think about the freedom that will come to you at the moment of your own biological death. Imagine well that you'll be conscious through that and not go into some kind of weird soul sleep state, but you now know you're free. What would that be like for you? To be free from the body of death. What will you feel? I mean, think, think with me. I mean, I don't think it's wrong to say, what do you think that will feel like? To be conscious that you are now free from the body of sin and death forever. What will you feel? Unspeakable freedom. Richard, what do you think? What do you think? We didn't feel at that moment. A taste, a foretaste. And I think if you had that foretaste in the midst of the battle, right? In the midst of the temptation, say, you know how good it's going to feel to be free from sin. Oh, wait, I am. Verse 11, count yourself at that moment dead to sin. That's what he's saying. You are right now dead to sin. That's what he's saying. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. Remember, there's a negative and a positive, always negative. So negatively, you're dead to the wickedness. Positively, God has good works for you to do. So right now, what you could do is sing a praise song to him. Go pray for somebody. Do something good. Do something for the kingdom, not sin. Do something that's righteous and holy and good that you'll be glad you did on Judgment Day, not ashamed of on Judgment Day. Do that. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to something better. That's what he's saying, verse 11. Let's keep going. So this is a battle for the mind. Remember I told you, this is the first commandment given in the book of Romans. It's like a trivia fact. So if you're ever like in Bible trivia, all right, you can, uh, what is the first command given in the book of Romans? Nobody's going to ask you that. But anyway, you say Romans 6.11. Consider it. So think of yourself this way. He's again and again appealing to the mind. And Romans, uh, you know, the appeal that you see in Romans, you see it other places like Ephesians 4. There he says in verse 17 through 24, I tell you this and insist on the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. 
You see that? It's a focus on the mind. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts, the heart being a mind kind of thing, uh, soul and mind. Uh, you know, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, didn't come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, so the teaching ministry. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Do you see that? And to put on the new self. This is a battle for the mind. So what I would say is a key plank or a key weapon in the battle for the mind is Romans 6.11. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus all the time. Just say that to yourself. All right, now, having done that, the next thing that happens is a presentation of the members to the master whom you will serve. So someone read verse 12 through 14, uh, Romans 6, 12 through 14. All right, so here is, many people know better, uh, maybe more famous, Romans 12, 1, where it says, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to, what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I think people that just have not done a careful study in Romans don't realize he's just recapitulating what he taught in detail in Romans 6. He's just saying the same thing. So it's got to do with the presentation of the members. Now, what are the members? It's all of your physical and mental functions. It isn't just physical, it's mental. But present your mind to God to be used purely, right? I'm going to think pure thoughts. I'm going to think scriptural thoughts here. I'm going to offer my mind to God. And present your mouth, because out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. I'm going to speak only what's true and helpful. And I'm going to offer my hands and my feet and every part of, of me, my body, I'm going to offer to God, because sin is not my master anymore. I'm not going to obey its lusts. The lust, James says, the lust is what causes us to sin. We're not tempted by God to sin. We're tempted by our own internal lusts and opportunities. So opportunity providentially comes in this world badly. All right, I don't say providentially, it just does, but it doesn't have to sin. Jesus walked through it providentially and never sinned. All right, but what I'm saying is situations occur and your inner lust rise up and meet those situations and, and sin is conceived and, and it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death, meaning hell. So that's, that's James. So don't obey evil desires. Don't obey evil lusts. That's what Paul's saying here in 12 through 14. And with the end that you offer the parts of your body to act on those evil lusts. But instead, don't do nothing. Don't be neutral. Don't be on the zero line. Offer yourself to God and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. That's what he's saying. Now, the image that I was given, I think it was by Lloyd-Jones or someone else a long time ago, of this presentation came in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember how Peter's trying to save Jesus' life. Remember that? Draws out his, his fishing dagger. That's got to be like one of the most one-sided battles ever. 600 Roman soldiers against Peter and his fishing dagger. I think he was thinking that Jesus would be with him helping. In that case, I think they'd win. Um, but I don't know what Peter was thinking. Peter wasn't thinking clearly, but he's like, he's going to fight to prevent uh, Jesus' arrest. And so he ends up cutting off Malchus's ear, you know, which is just, it's just a bad look at, uh, across the, the line. And you remember how, P, uh, how Jesus says, put your sword away, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I could not call on my father? And he would at once, and here's the same Greek word, put at my disposal, the NIV gives us, present to me, more than 12 legions of angels. 
So, and, but he says, but how then would the scripture be fulfilled if that happened? So I want, I want you to see the demeanor of the angels as they come, having been dispatched by the Father to Jesus. And they're coming to Jesus for what? What would the angels, huh? To protect him. Yeah, I know, but they're, they're, they're coming to listen. What do they want from Jesus? Orders. Orders. Tell us what to do. And let's say he said, kill those Roman soldiers. What would they do? It's done. Instantly. Remember how it says in the Lord's Prayer, may your will be done on earth the same way it's being done up in heaven. How is it being done in heaven? Well, like we said a long time ago, learn this from a parenting thing, all the way, right away with a happy spirit. That's obedience. They do everything God said completely and eagerly. Have you not seen that in the book of Revelation? Pouring out wrath on the earth eagerly because they just trust God. So that's an, a good image for you in terms of your body. I am yours to command. What do you want me to do? I'm done with my rebellion. I'm done fighting you, King Jesus. I now want to serve you. I offer my brain. I offer my mouth. I offer my, my stomach. I offer my hands and my feet. I offer every function of my body to you to, to, to command. What do you want me to do? That's what Paul's teaching here. So how does that image help you in sanctification? Yeah, because the other way around, it's so selfish. What can I do to serve me? What can I do to pander to my lust? What can I do to make me happy right now? Turn the thing around and say, what? I'm here for you. I'm here to serve you. Because, and this is the thing we have the hardest time imagining, we were created to be slaves. Eternally slaves. Also sons. Both of those images are there, but in Revelation 22, it says his servants will serve him. That's a tame translation. Up in heaven, his slaves will obey him, and they will be so happy they have such a wonderful master. You're like, are we going to be slaves in heaven? Yes. And here's the thing. The, the, one of the biggest satanic temptations and deceptions is to teach you you're not a slave. You don't have to obey anyone. You are a free agent. There's no obedience. Do what you want. How is that a satanic deception? To be told you're a free agent, you don't have any master, you can obey, no one, just do what you want. How is that an incredible lie from Satan? They say, why is that not an option? So if you really believe you don't need to serve the triune God, you don't need to read the Bible, you can, and you're your own person, nobody's telling you what to do, are you actually a slave? Yes. No doubt about it. Who are you a slave to? Satan or sin or death, different ways of saying it. You actually are a slave. You just have a very, very bad master. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, let me be your king, your master. You'll find that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not you have no yoke, you have no one to obey, not at all. It's just what you're going to find finally is my commands are all good and holy and righteous. They're wonderful. That's what we're talking about. So he ends this, this chapter with verses 15 through 18. Go ahead and read that, verses 15 through 18. Okay, so what Paul's saying here in verse 16 is, you show who your master is by who you habitually obey. That's what he's saying. So practical obedience, practical lifestyle reveals who your true master is. That's what he's saying. So you have to learn, progressive sanctification is about learning more and more who your true master is and living that out. You have a master, you have a king, and it's God or righteousness personified. There are different ways he uses the language, but it's all the same thing. It's God, Christ, Holy Spirit, the righteousness of the law. There are different ways of looking at it. Um, but that's, that's the, uh, the, the new life. Conversely, if you are actually obeying lusts, you're actually obeying Satan. You are living as though you're under the law and it's condemning power. It's a whole different way of living your life. So fundamentally, 
you know, you are showing who, what kingdom you belong to by how you live your life. Now, what's so beautiful about this is Paul says again and again, you know, the truth about you is actually you've been set free from sin. So he's like, if you won't do it, I'll tell you. <laughs> but you need to tell yourself this more and more. Look at what he says in verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Incredible verse. Probably my favorite sermon title that I ever wrote. I love this sermon title. It's from Romans six seventeen. Thank God you obeyed. Isn't that great? Do you get that out of verse 17? Do you see that? Thank, thank God you obeyed. Well, just remove some inner clauses. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves. To, or take all that middle part out. Thanks be to God that you wholeheartedly obeyed. And even take wholeheartedly out so you're not confused. Thanks be to God that you obeyed the gospel. And it's like, that's a mind blower. Why would that be like mind blowing? Thank God you obeyed. I would put it this way. First of all, it's just true. You ought to give God thanks that you obeyed the gospel. And did you, by the way, obey the gospel? Is the gospel something to be obeyed? Yes. It's a command. It's a command from the king to stop your rebellion and come back into the kingdom and receive his amnesty. It's also a promise, but it is definitely a command. And so the command came, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. That's a command. Very good command, but it's a command, and you obeyed it. You came to Jesus. And when you did, what does this verse, verse 17, tell you you should do? Thank God you did it. So now you're like, wow, this is a powerful idea. Do you want to grow in your obedience? Yes, that's the whole thing we're talking about here. I want to obey more and more and more. I want to obey better and better. I want to show more and more who my master is. I don't want sin to be my master. I want to show that Jesus is my master. Would you please, oh God, make me more obedient? Is that an appropriate prayer? Can we pray something like that? Actually, that's exactly what you need to do. Say, oh God, would you please work in me that I'm more obedient than I've ever been before. And there's more I could say about verse 17. I got to do a baptism, guys, so I got to go. <laughs> so, ah, so let me just say the one thing. I don't, uh, they'll wait for me. Anyway, um, verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed from the heart that form of teaching, that gospel to which you were entrusted. I think of this as the babysitting verse, okay? When you entrust your kids to someone, Ben, you've got kids. What does the word entrust mean when it comes to your kids and a babysitter? What does that word entrust mean? Leave them under their care. Is that a big decision for you? Yeah, what work do you do beforehand before you use a babysitter? Who is this person? Are they going to care for my kids? God the Father cares for his kids. And he thought it was safe to entrust you to the gospel. Gospel will take good care of them. The gospel will protect them. The gospel will see them safely home to heaven. You are protected and cared for and fed and nurtured like a babysitter, a good babysitter would for the little kids. Cared and protected and nurtured until you're safely in heaven. The gospel will do that for you. Isn't that beautiful? Anyway, I had to say this, so, so beautiful. We're going to get to verse 19. Verse 19 next time is the habit verse. It's powerful teaching. We'll look at that next time. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching 
for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.